here today with an episode about Maria Konnikova's new book, The Biggest Fluff. Before we get into that, though, I want to talk a little bit about what's been going on with me lately and what you might expect from the podcast in the next few months. So as most of you know, I live in Los Angeles. There have been a ton of coronavirus cases in LA County lately. Uh, The casinos near LA reopened not this past weekend, but the weekend before. They've all taken at least some safety precautions, which I guess is admirable. Uh, Most or all of them have plexiglass dividers between players at the table. At least some of them are requiring temperature checks. They're requiring masks. They're mostly playing not nine-handed, but shorter-handed than that. So those are all good things. Uh, But I can't shake the feeling that uh, going to the casino is maybe not the safest thing to be doing quite yet, much as I would like to be there. So um, it's an interesting time. A lot of people are in there playing already. I have not yet played and... Uh, will not for at least probably a couple more weeks. I have to say though, I was I was happy to see this past weekend that Live at the Bike was back. I don't think I'm going to be playing on Live at the Bike anytime soon, but I would really like to go in and commentate. That's just me in a room and uh, feels like a, a, a safe thing for me to be doing certainly. And also helps provide a, a form of live entertainment that people can watch from home. So... Yeah, excited to get in there and uh, commentate, but not ready to play live poker just yet. What's also become clear to me is that poker has changed a lot over the last several months. And I had planned for the second season of Third Man Walking to be pretty much like the first in that I would spend six months or so writing six to eight episodes and uh, then put them out one a week in the fall. But uh, looking over what I've already written, and I've written a lot, a lot of it already is kind of irrelevant because just conditions around poker have changed so much over the past few months. So I think what I'm going to do instead is just go ahead and say, I'm going to do at least one episode a month for the foreseeable future. And that will mean that anything I write for this podcast doesn't get stale. So definitely going to do one episode a month and we'll say it's it's going to be the first Tuesday of every month uh, starting in August. Uh, so the podcast will be coming out a little bit more regularly in the future. So let's get into the biggest bluff. I assume many of you are aware of Konnikova's story, but basically she's a psychologist and a New Yorker writer who had the idea to write a book about poker from the ground up, knowing next to nothing about it, knowing not even how many cards were in the deck. And she learned to play poker and did well enough at it that she won a pretty significant tournament at the Poker Stars Caribbean Adventure in the Bahamas a couple years ago, and uh, also cashed in the main event and a number of other tournaments. So the biggest bluff covers her journey from basically being a complete poker noob to being someone who was competitive and or profitable in major poker tournaments. It's one of the best long form pieces of writing about poker that I know of. It uh, came out last Tuesday 
And so I've only had a few days to really get into it. But here are my quick thoughts after reading it over the course of a couple days last week. So in some sense, this is a book about thinking, about thinking clearly and making good decisions and taming our mind's tendencies to push us toward bad decisions. Konnikova explores these tendencies through the prism of her own experiences at the poker table, but also by talking to top poker players and to researchers whose work deals in one way or another with how humans handle decision-making. It reminds me in some respects of other recent books about trying to make good decisions with the best available information, like Nate Silver's The Signal and the Noise, or Michael Lewis's Moneyball. And I suspect many people who are not fans of poker, but who are fans of books like that, will like this book. The book is also noteworthy in that Konnikova gets Eric Seidel to coach her. So for those of you who aren't deep into the poker world, you might know Seidel as the other guy in that hand from the 1988 World Series of Poker main event that gets showed in the film Rounders, the guy who loses the hand. Seidel has been near the top of the poker world almost continuously for 30 years, which is an incredible accomplishment given the changes in the game that have taken place in that time. And yet we know relatively little about his thoughts on the game. He's just not very forthcoming with them generally. Konnikova also speaks to a number of other top pros, more willingly public figures like Phil Galfond and Ike Haxton and Andrew Lichtenberger. But all of the poker players she interviews seem to be cut from similar cloth, basically quiet, cerebral, non-degenerate types. If you're a poker player, Seidel doesn't say much that will help you with your game, but much of what he does say is interesting and is pretty far from the usual poker speak. Konnikova, for example, suggests to him that poker is like war, an analogy she uses a lot. But Seidel's way of looking at it is pretty different. He says, I look at it like you're part of a jazz band. You're trying to play connected and in sync with the rest of the players. It has nothing to do with you, really. That's not the jazz part. It's all about what are these guys doing and how do I respond to it? And uh, that's, yeah, that's a, a way of looking at poker that I like a lot, almost as a collaborative rather than a competitive enterprise. One of the reasons there isn't much practical poker advice here is that just philosophically, Seidel doesn't give much of it. Both he and Galfond, who Konnikova also consults for poker advice, seem to prefer not to teach students strategies to memorize. Galfon does admit, quote, it works well without a large risk of failure if you memorize and implement everything properly. But he cautions Konnikova against taking shortcuts, which I took to mean, for example, memorizing charts and solver solutions rather than learning to think. Instead, Galfond thinks about poker in terms of storytelling. Does my story add up? Does my opponent's? He says, The times I have my largest advantages over an opponent are when they think the story they're telling makes sense, and I know it doesn't. I know how they'd play certain hands better than they do. This way of looking at poker reminds me of a very old commercial Gus Hansen did for Full Tilt, maybe around 2008 or so. We see Hansen playing poker, and in the voiceover he says, I'm about to tell you a story. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Fact or fiction? Doesn't matter. It's all how I tell it. 
It strikes me that this way of learning poker, that is primarily as a process of storytelling and critical thinking and not memorization, would have been especially effective a decade or more ago in the era when the Hansen commercial was made or when Galfond was learning to play. But if I were advising someone learning to play now, I'd lean pretty heavily on memorization, as boring as that sounds. Now the stuff that's available to memorize is a lot better than it used to be, and people play so well, even at the lower stakes online games or the mid stakes live games, that you're going to have a lot of trouble if you haven't memorized some things. But you do need both approaches. You need charts, and you need that sense of storytelling, that sense of critical thinking unfolding through a hand. And the latter is definitely the one I'd prefer to read about in a book. Konnikova frames poker as a microcosm of life as a whole, or as she puts it, an overview of life at warp speed. There are factors we can control and those we can't, and poker like life is a balance of those sets of factors. But as she says, skill shines through over the longer time horizon. Poker is surely a mix of chance and skill, and over the long term, skill predominates. But that's much more true in cash games, which I play, than in live tournaments. After a bit of online poker early in her journey, Konnikova plays live tournaments exclusively or almost exclusively, and I don't see live tournament poker as especially meritocratic. Bad players frequently win huge prizes that can sustain them for years, and good players can go years without winning much. As Konnikova does note, there's never really such a thing as a meritocracy ever, although she does add, but this world, that is poker, is as close as I've seen. She notes the presence of anti-Fedors throughout poker, players whose luck was on the opposite end of the spectrum from that of tournament wunderkind Fedor Holtz, and who fared so badly they ended up out of the game before it ever even became clear to them how good they could be. It's certainly true that many top tournament pros actually are great players, Fedor being one of them. But the fact that there can even be Fedors and anti-Fedors strongly suggests to me that live tournament poker isn't especially merit-based. I think it's also fair to note here that Konnikova is an Ivy League-educated psychologist who got coaching from Eric Seidel and Phil Galfond, and who obviously had what was apparently a pretty hefty budget for travel at the beginning of her poker journey. Not that she didn't earn her degrees or her gig at the New Yorker, but the book is full of reminders that she did have an enormous head start as she began as a poker player. As Konnikova notes, actual meritocracies don't really exist, and to me, poker is not all that close to being one. Even setting aside variance, which clearly isn't meritocratic, success in poker can turn heavily on things like who's around to teach you and whether you have money to get started. I do see what she's getting at, though. One of the things I liked most about poker when it became my main source of income was that I never had to edit my CV or talk about where I went to school or answer to a boss. She notes that a number of top poker players come from modest means, like Jason Kuhn, who grew up in tough circumstances in West Virginia. Once you've scrapped together a bankroll and reached a certain skill level, poker does feel more meritocratic than many occupations. Okay, I'll move on. Obviously, poker is somewhere on the meritocracy spectrum, or else pros couldn't exist, and I'm spending too much time on this topic, but I do think it's interesting. I'll talk more about poker as a meritocracy in a future episode, as it pertains to higher-stakes cash games, where the key component of success increasingly seems to be one's ability to get into games, rather than actually playing well in them. One of Konnikova's most interesting interviews is with Dan Harrington, who does a nice job explaining the differences between poker-playing styles. He says, 
There are many great players who play with a lot more courage than Eric or I will ever know. The trouble is, that's inherent in their personality, and that contains the seeds of their destruction. The quote is accurate about the career trajectories of many players, and, I think, telling regarding the ironically nicknamed Action Dan's approach to the game. Konnikova also notices a number of lifestyle choices that separate many top pros from ordinary people. For one thing, a lot of them use a lot of drugs at various levels of legality. Melatonin, caffeine, Adderall, weed, psychedelics. They do this not necessarily for pleasure, but in pursuit of what Konnikova calls a game-theoretical model to be optimized. That is, just as they might try to optimize their play in a hand, many top poker players try to optimize their lives in the same way. They do this not only with drugs, but with diets, exercise, and meditation, which is why you hear so many poker players talk about keto and yoga all the time. As you might expect given Konnikova's psychology background, the biggest bluff has a good unit on tells. It fits in nicely with Galfon's thesis that poker is about storytelling. Konnikova quotes the behavioral analyst Blake Eastman, who emphasizes that tells aren't a matter of simple correlation. He ate the Oreo, so he has it. As Eastman puts it, it's not one gesture, one tick, one action that yields information. Instead, he says, we're just looking at how behavior aids the story that is being communicated by the context. In other words, think of a poker hand like a story and assess whether a player's physical actions make sense in the story. Konnikova emphasizes watching a player's hands to look for physical tells. A smooth betting motion might indicate strength, for example. Konnikova has much to say about how difficult it can be to be a woman in poker. A couple times in the book, she describes being verbally abused by male players in the low-stakes tournaments she's playing. In one case, a player hits on her relentlessly, despite her repeated rejections, and no one at her table speaks up in her support when the floor declines to do anything to stop her pursuer. But she also argues that there are some less obvious obstacles to being successful as a woman poker player. She cites research suggesting that women are punished in the workplace for behaviors that are coded as aggressive, for negotiating for a higher salary, for example. So for a woman in many aspects of life, being less confrontational is actually strategic. So taking aggressive actions at the poker table, which are generally more profitable than passive ones, might not feel natural to some women players. She writes, Part of the reason that there are so few women in the game is that, in an environment that's 97% male, the biases we've had to negotiate all our lives are put on a massive scale. There's a lot to overcome internally. We follow Konnikova as she travels to various tournament stops. Las Vegas, Maryland, Monaco, the Bahamas. I loved her descriptions of many of these places. Macau, which I haven't been to, is, quote, Vegas, only bigger and weirder and without any of the things that make Vegas livable. Nightclubs and shows have failed in Macau, as most visitors just want to gamble. As a result, she says, Macau feels as if it doesn't have a heart. Because Macau saps you of energy for anything else, it is a frightening place, the belly of the beast. And the beast makes you see the ugliness that is easy to overlook in the rest of the poker world. I expect many readers will find Konnikova's path through the tournament scene to be the most interesting part of the book, and it's certainly impressive that she went from not knowing anything about poker to beating a pro-heavy final table within just a couple years. 
The more important narrative in the book, though, is that of a smart person immersing herself in a world with which she's unfamiliar and becoming successful in it, all while wrangling with aspects of its culture that many of us take for granted. It's rare that we get a long piece of writing about poker that's as good as The Biggest Bluff is. A lot of writing about poker that comes from within the poker community is accurate as far as poker is concerned, but not written or edited especially well. And writers who've approached poker from the outside frequently misunderstand the game and the people who play it. Think, for example, of most poker scenes in movies that aren't rounders. Konnikova talked to all the right people and really took the time to understand the game and the community. Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at Third Walking or via email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com. 